Well, the, uh, the seven bowls of wrath, the charming Father's Day sermon title, is it not? It's part of my marketing genius. Um, just happens to be where we are. Though I suppose in some cases it might tragically fit. Um, but in any case, to, to refresh your memory, last Sunday was Trinity Sunday. Uh, two weeks ago, in Revelation 15, we had the introduction to these seven bowls of wrath. Uh, and the introduction told us that with the seven bowls of wrath, the wrath of God is finished. It comes to an end. And so you'll remember the structure of the book again. We have seven seal judgments. Then we wrap back around and you get seven trumpet judgments. Both those sets of judgments run all the way up to the final coming of the kingdom. They sort of increase in intensity as you move from the seals to the trumpets. And today we come to the bowls. And here the judgments are total. Those were sort of partial judgments, the earlier ones. Here the judgments, as they're unfolded, are total judgments. And in these bowl judgments, there's no interlude. There's no interlude speaking of the ministry of the church in the midst of the judgments, as there was with the seals and the trumpets, because this is the final sequence. So, like the trumpet judgments before them, these bowls cover the same realms. They cover them in the same general order. Earth, sea, river, sky, darkness, later on the Euphrates River, and then the cosmos as a whole. So John is crafting a kind of literary work of art where the structure is very important. And much like the trumpets as well, these bowls are modeled on the Exodus plagues. So what's going on is that the final Exodus, the final deliverance of God's people from tyrannical powers is now at hand. So one more word of clarification, I guess, before we start on the bowls. Since these judgments are comprehensive, we should think of them as occurring right at or before the end. We might put it this way. From a literary point of view, literarily, they're parallel to the seals and the trumpets. Seals, trumpets, bowls. But they can't be fully chronologically parallel because you can't have total judgment throughout the whole history of the church. So today we'll make four points. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The first point is the introduction and the first bowl. So Revelation chapter uh, 16, right, the text tells us that I heard of a loud voice from the temple. But this is almost certainly the voice of God himself. And this voice out of the divine temple tells these seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. You might remember that the, uh, the first exodus in Egypt, it didn't occur until the iniquities of the inhabitants of the land were filled up. And that's what's going on here with this final exodus. It doesn't occur until the sins of the earth are filled up. Remember, with these bowls, 
The wrath of God is finished, John has already told us. Finished. And so in verse 2, in response to this divine command, the first angel goes, pours his bowl on the earth or on the land. And the result here is that there's painful sores, like the plague of boils at the Exodus. They come upon the people who bear the mark of the beast and worshipped his image, the text says. So, Another interpretive word here. We've said things like this before, but I think this is a good place to say it again. So the language here has to be taken seriously, really, soberly, but not strictly, literally. It's figurative, symbolic language. For example, angels are immaterial creatures. They don't carry around bowls of wrath. And because that's true, we should probably take the results of the bowls as a symbol, a serious one, a sober one, that the the world suffers these grievous penalties. So, for example, in chapter 14, eternal torment was threatened. It was threatened there if anyone took the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Here, tragically, that torment is now at hand. And so the connection here with the mark of the beast is something John something the Holy Spirit certainly wants you to see. It's ironic. It's as if through the sores, the boils, the mark of the beast has become a a penal mark, an open, festering wound of judgment. You took the mark of the beast, you're going to have sores open up on you. Wounds. Now, we've already seen this before, and we'll see it again later. But the, mar- the primary significance of the mark of the beast was economic. No one could buy or sell without it. So this plague probably entails economic suffering on those who have idolatrously looked to the beast for economic security. So, the second point here, which, de- which deals with the second and third bowls, is in verse 3, or begins in verse 3. The second angel pours his blood into the sea and it becomes like the blood of a corpse, coagulated, thick blood. So again, it's hard to keep this in mind because John keeps wrapping back, but this is an intensification, uh, a, a ratcheting up, right? a more ferocious version of the trumpet judgments where a third of the sea was turned to blood and a third of everything in the sea died. Here the whole sea becomes blood. Everything in the sea dies. And of course, John is drawing on a deeper background here. He's drawing on the Exodus plagues where the Nile itself is turned to blood. So, the sea. We've already seen this, right? The sea stands in for the raging chaos of the nations. Next, in a couple weeks, we'll see in chapter 17 that Babylon, the prostitute, which is first and foremost the city of Rome, is depicted as seated over many waters. She rides on the seas. And there the text tells us expressly, you don't have to take my word for it, it tells us expressly that the many waters are nations, peoples, and languages. The sea 
is an image of the raging chaos of the nations. And so what this judgment is alluding to is Babylon's, Rome's, economic collapse. Her prosperous maritime sea commerce with the nations is destroyed by a blood-red dead sea. And this economic destruction will be detailed uh, exhaustively by John in chapter 18. So you get a third bowl, again, again modeled on the Exodus, the plague of the Nile, the rivers and the springs of water also turn to blood. It's just a continuation of the second bowl. And that brings us to the third point. Our next point is the doxology. That's what you'd expect here, right? A doxology. What could be next? Bowls of wrath being poured out on the rivers, everything turning to blood. Of course, time for a doxology. That's how far the modern church's instincts are from the instincts of the apostles and the prophets. So in verse 5, John hears the angel in charge of the waters. Probably the second angel. His song has been placed here now that all the water, salt and fresh water, all of it has been turned to blood. And what he says or what he sings here is called a judgment doxology. This is called a judgment doxology. Look for them in your hymnal. They're hard to find. Judgment doxologies. It's a song of praise to God, the giver of these judgments. And the angel starts by saying, you are just in these judgments. We've seen this over and over again. The key thing here is that these judgments reveal the justice of God, his uprightness, his righteousness, his basic integrity. I'll come back to this in a few minutes. He is, the text says, the one who is, the one who was, and now he is being praised because the text says he has brought these judgments. Now, this is important to get because John has used this formula before. This is a place where you would expect the text to say this. The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. But you don't get that. Instead of the one who is to come, you get the one who has so judged. The God of the future has now come in judgment. There is no one who is to come because we're at the end. The Lord God Almighty has appeared. And, in, and the coming in, in this judgment is the very reason his justice is extolled. He is just, the angel says, he is the Holy One precisely because he has so judged. Now that might seem obvious. But I think we should recall that before this, history is littered, overflowing with injustice. Right, there is a sense in which God's very justice is called into question until this event happens. Right? Is it not? There's a sense in which, yes, we confess he's just. We believe he's just. Scripture tells us he's just. We've seen his justice in Jesus Christ. But our eyes see a world littered with injustice everywhere, every day. That he appears not to be interested in doing anything about. 
So it's very important that we grasp this, right? Until this happens, it is not clear and it is not manifest and it is not public, at least fully so, that the God you worship is just. After all, there's a half a million dead people and a couple million refugees in Syria, and he's not fixed that. And he hasn't fixed the results of Soviet tyranny or the, or the Holocaust or any other dozens of things we could go on forever on. There they are. They just lie out there splattered in history. They're the most vile, disgusting, evil injustices, and they are not rectified. Right? This is the, the, this is the ground of atheist taunting. You believe in a just God? How is this even possible? It's very important to get the acuteness of this and the sense of its necessity to be bent properly toward the end. Right? When, when this happens, the angels say, now we, we extol your justice. Now your justice is revealed. So in verse 6, we get reasons why God has brought these judgments. For they, those who dwell on the earth, They have shed the blood of your saints and prophets. The shed blood of the whole faithful church through the ages, the martyrs, is the primary reason. It's not the only reason, as we will see, but it's it's a central reason for the judgment of Babylon. They've poured out blood. How many Christian martyrs from the first century to now have been openly, publicly, Vindicated by God. Zero. Right? Zero. We're waiting for this event. (laughs) They've poured out blood, and the text says, You have given them blood, their own blood to drink. We saw this in the Old Testament lesson, which is John is drawing on here from Isaiah 49. It says this, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then, then all flesh will know that I am the Lord, your Savior. These blood judgments, the sea turning to blood, all the water turning to blood, them drinking their own blood, these are a great anti-Eucharist. They're a great anti-Eucharist. The followers of the beast refuse to drink the blood of Christ. Instead, they gorge themselves on the blood of the saints. And so God serves up a gruesome anti-Eucharist in which they drink their own blood, given to them from his own chalices, his own temple bowls. Everything is about that table. And all of this, the angel says unapologetically at the end of verse 6, You can see this at the end of verse 6. This is what they deserve. Again, these judgments are not God having a hissy fit. They're just a calm, serene, resplendent judge in his fiery, holy majesty administering perfect redress. They follow the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, in this case, blood for blood. Pattern of exact rectitude. John is again being ironic here. The the, the text says, for this is what they deserve. 
It's literally for this, for they are worthy. Unlike the Lord God and the Lamb who are worthy, and the faithful church which is called worthy, they are worthy, meaning they deserve to be seated. They deserve to be seated at the great anti-Eucharist feast of their own blood. And in verse 7, the altar. So this is a heavenly liturgy. Notice who the participants have been. The angel of the waters, and now in verse 7, the martyrs who are under the altar, who have been crying out for vindication throughout history, they add their amen to this judgment doxology. There are two, two parties in this, in this liturgy, a heavenly angel and the souls of the martyrs. This is their emphatic reaffirmation of what the angel has just sung. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The saints under the altar in heaven are now finally seeing the vindication they've been longing and praying for since their martyrdom. You may remember all the way back in chapter 6, we got the first picture of these martyrs. By the way, when John writes, there are almost no martyrs. But thousands of martyrs are about to come in the Roman Empire. And John sees them all slain, and he sees them in heaven. And you remember what they're saying. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood? And you might remember their answer that they were given. The answer was, rest a while until every last martyr's blood is shed. And when the last martyr dies, I'll vindicate all the martyrs together. And that's where we are in the text. And so the final point, the last two bowls here, the fourth and fifth bowls, um, again, if you go back, the fourth trumpet had to do with the sun and the stars and a third of the lights. Here, again, the fourth bowl, the angel pours his bowl on the sun and it's allowed to scorch people with fire. So fire was thrown down from the altar earlier in the book in response to the prayers of the saints. And this is the final expression of that reality. The scorching fire from the sun. Again, John is being ironic. Earlier he described the saints who have God's seal on them. He said they will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun shall strike them no more, neither any scorching heat. The saints are protected from this fiery judgment. For the saints, you go all the way back to the Christ of chapter 1, whose eyes are depicted as a flame of fire. For you, those are purifying eyes. For those who turn in unbelief, those are scorching fire of judgment. And so this is a preview, this fire of the final lake of fire. And in their hardness, the text says they don't repent. They refuse to glorify God, but they curse or blaspheme his name. The anti-Eucharist has no thanksgiving, only cursing. Eucharist means thanksgiving. This is an anti-Eucharist. So its fundamental speech act is cursing and blasphemy. And then in verse 10, another angel, the fifth one. We're getting through these bowls. The fifth one pours out his throne on the beast. On the realm of the empire, it's plunged into darkness. Again, echoing the plague of darkness from the Exodus. So here Rome, the empire, 
And by extension, all these bestial powers become what they are spiritually. They become realms of confusion and delusion and rebellion. And the beast kingdom is now revealed. It's the complete antithesis to the fully illumined New Jerusalem, where the glory of God and the light of the Lamb dispel all darkness. And the response is the same. As for the previous bowl, the people gnawed their tongues in anguish. There are two choices, two choices for human tongues. They both start with G. Gratitude or gnawing. Gratitude or gnawing. Eucharist or anti-Eucharist. And every life is arced, has a trajectory in one direction or the other. And in verse 11, they curse the God of heaven. Right? That's what gnawed tongues do. And they did not repent of their deeds. You might remember, even even in Egypt, during the final plagues, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. So it is here. It's an astonishing thing, but human beings, in our fallenness, as sinners, we have an amazing capacity to act against our own best self-interest. And we can do it in extraordinary ways. You would think, well, gee... If God poured out a plague and the whole sea was turned to blood, whatever that might mean symbolically, that might get people's attention. You know what the text says? Not so much. Really? No? No? I mean, what's gotten our attention? Not too much that I can tell. We tend to double down when the plagues fall on our heads. I mean... The severest of punishments, and even knowing there are punishments, because of our deep attachment to our sins, is such that we are not willing to give them up. C.S. Lewis speculates that the people in hell would not switch sides, even if given the opportunity. There's a sense in which we desperately cling to our deepest kinds of evils. It reminds me of Augustine's famous prayer where he says, Lord, give me chastity. I really want chastity, Lord. And he's desperate and he knows he needs it. And on some level he wants it. But he says, but not yet. In other words, he he can't even want what he knows he's supposed to want. Because deep down, we prefer sinning. That dynamic, which is in all of our hearts, is present here in its fullest expose. The plagues from heaven are poured out on people and they harden under them and they gnaw their tongues. Suffering breaks some people and it really hardens other people. And so, I think it's a text that has some lessons to us and some critical lessons. You might not think, you know, a text on the bowls of wrath has a lot of relevance. I think it does. Now, due to the parallel structure of the book, we've seen them before. But it's no problem for me to restate them. I mean, God repeats himself a good bit in Revelation, so I think we should take heed. So let me just make a couple points to close. Um, And I've made them before, but I'm going to say them again. First, this is how the world ends. And this means this is how the intractable evils of the world are finally shattered. That's why three times in the last chapter or so, the justice of God has been extolled. 
So, now, this is critical, I think, for how we evaluate our lives and our hardships and the injustices and frustrations we face now. Right? This is the kind of thing which easily drops out of view, I think, in our, in our, in our vision. And so, there are two things to, to, um, to keep in view here, I think, in light of a text like this. One is, we should be people that have a kind of critical realism about life and history. To this point, zero martyrs have been vindicated. Right? There's no magic wand that's about to be waved over Syria to make everything better tomorrow. So there's a kind of um, Christian um, sentimentality that we must be done with. We can have nothing to do with it. Because we live in this kind of world... And these kind of evils will be rectified then. And yet, we have to assert that God will come in judgment to vindicate his name and his church. We are both realists, and if we believe this text, we are people that are trying, seeking by God's grace, to cultivate the virtue of hope. And the virtue of hope is different than simply checking a box that affirms, yes, Jesus will come way out there and make things right. You are saved, Paul says, in hope. What does he mean by that? He says you're saved in hope. And if hope is, hope is something that is not seen, he says in Romans 8. And where did, what's the context for that? The context is the redemption of your bodies and the renewal of a groaning creation. Your very salvation in Christ bends you right toward this action. What is seen is not hope, Paul says. And so we are people who who should cultivate acts of hope now in the midst of the injustices and the unfairnesses and the bitterness and the the, uh, friction of life now. Hope aspires for the rectification of all things. And that means it has to see this apocalyptic wrath. I mean, even if God were to govern the world tonight for the indefinite future in such a way that he permitted no injustices, he still has to rectify all past injustices. It would not be enough As I've said many times before, he has to empty the cemeteries. So, we are cultivating this hope, and this hope dislocates us somewhat. It uproots us a bit from this age. So, the second thing about a text like this is we're warned. I mean, these texts are scary. We should be people whose lives are marked by quick and frequent and vigorous and daily repentance. We don't want to be like those who get hardened, right? These people were once little children bouncing on their mother's knees, right? They don't, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful story where um, uh, a journalist, uh, she's now, uh, she was uh, not that famous at the time, but she became famous. I can't remember her last name now. But she went to, to interview a Nazi. This is after World War II, 
who had started out in, in some of the smaller scale Nazi criminal activities, euthanasia camps and the like, and ended up as the commandant of Treblinka. And he was imprisoned after the war. And she went to see him in prison and said, I want to talk to you about how you could have ended up doing these sorts of things. Surely, when you were a young boy, you were not a monster. How did this happen? And he said, defensively, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. He was unrepentant. He's the commandant of Treblinka. Completely unrepentant. I did nothing wrong, he said. I was just doing my job. I was just doing my duty to my country. Right? Just an accountant or an engineer or a chemist. Just a guy making the trains run, just watching over things. Just an administrator. And she said, look, if you're not going to fess up to it, then I'm not going to waste my time. And she left. And he's sitting alone in his jail cell, and he changes his mind. And he decides he wants her to come back and talk to him. And she does. And over a long period of time, he starts to see himself as a monster. And he finally says to her one day, I should have died. Meaning, it would have been better for me to be executed by the Nazi regime and keep my integrity than for me to go along little by little by little by little and me, just an ordinary, normal, decent guy, become the monster, the commandant of Treblinka. That's what happens when people don't repent, when they're constantly involved in exercises of self-justification. You can bet there were 10,000 opportunities for this man to repent of his sins long before he became the, the commandant of Treblinka. But he doesn't look in the mirror, and he doesn't evaluate himself. And eventually you get a person who cannot repent. Thank God, by God's mercy, he saw this before he died. But he saw that the regime had pushed him into a position. I must die or I must lose my moral integrity. And he chose the latter. So be quick to repent. Third, with the, with the psalmist and the prophets, with the angel of the waters, with the martyrs under the altar, we rejoice in the justice and the holiness and the truth, the covenant fidelity of these judgments, because they reveal our Jesus and his Father to us and to the world. What does Paul say in Colossians? He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears in glory, you will appear in glory with him. So we don't apologize, we long for them. And we do it with tongues unnawed, grateful tongues. Because we're waiting for this hour. We're to be people who say, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So this is another call for patience, for endurance, for the cultivation of hope, for the basic disciplines of the Christian life. For reorienting the saints to the end. To not be oriented in a basic way to this scene is really to not have read the New Testament. This is what the resurrection orients us to, the new creation. So let's pay much closer attention to what we've heard, to use the words from the book of Hebrews, lest we drift from it. Praise be to God. Amen.